Welcome to God is Open. This is part two of, maybe it's a four-part, I don't know, we'll have to see. But uh, we're responding to Remonstrants and their podcast on open theism. Uh, these guys are pikers. They've never interacted with an open theist. Uh, they don't quote honest sources. They quote very hostile sources to open theism. And they don't interact with the material. They're, they're just unfamiliar with open theism's arguments. And they're doing a two-part series on open theism, which is just just perplexing to me, perplexing. But uh, let's uh, pick off, pick up where we left off and see what they say. Six, God is reactive. Because he is learning, God is constantly reacting to the decisions we make. And we covered this, so I'm going to skip forward just a little bit. Yeah. I think number seven might take the cake, though. Yeah. God makes mistakes. Oh, mistakes. So what would you consider a mistake? Right. If God says that he regrets something, would you call that a mistake? Because the Bible literally uses the word regret. The ESV, the Calvinist translation of the Bible, uses regret that God regretted that he had made man on the earth. He regretted he made Saul king. Well, what, what about Eli's house, his eternal house that he cut off from being an eternal house? There's regrets. Yeah. Uh, sometimes things don't turn out as expected. And so would you call that a mistake? Is it like if you have a kid and uh, you train him or whatever, but then he turns out evil and you regret ever having him, right? Is that a mistake? Did you make a mistake? Well, you could call it a mistake, but other people want just, just things turned out differently, right? It's not a mistake and it's kind of, that's loaded language and uh, try to find an open theist using that language if you want to use it, rather than a hostile source to open theism. Because he is learning and reacting, always dealing with limited information, God can and does make errors in judgment, which later require re-evaluation. Yeah. So basically, at this point, you're saying that God is not perfect. <laughs> okay, give us your definition of perfection. Uh, define it with the Bible, right? Because when the Bible talks about God's perfection, it's always in context of his righteousness. It's not in the context of he knows all the future and has a perfect plan laid out for all of the future and never has to react to anything. That's, that's paganism. It's not Christian. And it's, it's not in the Bible. The Bible is God reacting. As things change, God updates his plans and reacts. That's the entire story of the Bible. It's, it's all interaction, like like literally the whole thing. You just read the Bible, it's there. And watch God's relationship with Israel uh, for illustration, that God's, God starts off with humanity, right? God starts off with humanity, and they fail him. And so then he gives them leeway, and they multiply, and the world as a whole fails him again. He destroys it all. And then what does he try? He tries going through one individual, Abraham, Abram, he renames to Abraham, and creates a priest nation out of Abraham. And that nation is supposed to reach the world for God. So God's trying all these different ways to reach man, right? And his last attempt is uh, Jesus Christ, right? So God acts and reacts and tries new things, and, and there's all sorts of uh, complications to the plot, the plot of the Bible. That, that's the Bible. So if you don't like that, uh, maybe Christianity is not the religion for you. Yeah, pretty much. 
he makes mistakes and he reevaluates. So it's like you know, did God did God make a mistake when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? You know, mm. Sodom and Gomorrah is pretty interesting. Walter Bergerman has a pretty good quote on it, and it's should be on the God is Open blog, where you just uh, Google Sodom and Gomorrah or something like that, and Bergerman's name, and he talks about how the the role of Abraham in this story with the negotiation of the people and the lowering and lowering of the number is that. Abraham is imposing a higher standard on God's righteousness. He's, he's actually changing God's uh, justice, as, as it were. I mean, it, it's not, it wouldn't be wrong to have some collateral damage. You destroy a whole city, and sometimes the righteous might die. Like uh, in World War II, we might nuke a city, and sometimes innocent people might die. And sometimes God kills children in the Bible, and oftentimes it's because you're just wiping out entire lineages because it's just so wicked, uh, you'd rather not continue with that lineage. So, yes, the, the narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah is one in which God's justice is flexible. Right? It just, it's part of the story. But let's hear. Did God make a mistake when he, when he created... And he created the universe, and he created everything, and then Adam... And then he created man, and then he said, I regret my own action in making man. What, what's God's words that, that come from Yahweh's mouth? Uh, when these guys like to quote uh, anti-changing verses, it's always from an actor in the story. It's, it's never from God, right? And uh, so God says that I regret that I made man. What does that mean? It's, he's not regretting mankind became evil. That, yeah, he might not like the fact that mankind became evil, but he's regretting his own action. So deal with the text, deal with the arguments, and stop this uh, moralizing nonsense where you're just uh, emoting. Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Was that God's fault? Right. Yeah, or even, you know, did God make a mistake when he created Judas? Right. Because Judas led to the crucifixion of Christ, but right. we also see how... In Acts, it's it's very clear that God used the actions of Judas and Pontius Pilate and others to bring about his purposes. Yeah, you could usually use your enemy's resources uh, against other enemies. That's fine to do. Like uh, Bob Inyart, he has this story where he used the ACLU, who hates him, by the way. ACLU hates him. And uh, he got them to defend him on First Amendment grounds at some point. That's fine to do. Is use your enemy's actions for your own benefits. You know, it's it's not a problem with open theism. I don't see how it is. Which was the redemption of the world right. through the crucifixion of Christ. If you look at Acts chapter 4, Verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand in your plan had predestined to take place. So what's the point of this being in the Bible? Like I would, I think that in this context, 
he's saying to these other people, you guys might think you had the upper hand, but you were playing into God's ultimate purpose here. That, that's what you guys were doing. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it doesn't refute open theism. There's a bunch of enemies there. And, you know, do, do the enemies, do they, do they have to be enemies? Do we have any examples of people converting from an enemy of God to being not an enemy of God in the Bible? The, there's, you can find enemies of God anywhere, right? So it's, it's not real hard to do. And even if there was no enemies, and is that, is that the point you're making? That if there was no enemies, God couldn't have had his redemptive purposes fulfilled? Is, is, is that where you're going? I don't see what this has to do with open theism. I don't see how it refutes open theism. So you can see that God used even the sinful actions of Pilate and, and Herod and the... Are, are you guys... Yeah, I don't, I don't know what you guys are going for here. Gentiles and the people of Israel, including Judas, to, to bring about his purposes. Right. God, God worked all things together for good and... It led to, these actions led to the crucifixion of Christ, and then they ultimately led to our salvation. Right. Uh, oh, Jeff, Jeff, you had a question that you wanted to ask. Well, let's let's go over real quick the crucifixion. Did Jesus think it was a fixed event? Right. Did Jesus was he a Calvinist or Arminian? And he thought the entire future was settled, and nothing you could do could change the future. No, he said, God, if there's a way, let this cup pass for me. He's like, I don't want to do this crucifixion thing. Uh, I would rather not do it. And if there's a way, I'm not a Calvinist where I think there's not a way. And I'm not an Armenian that thinks everything's set. And, you know, this this event has to happen as foretold through the prophecy. I understand prophecy is flexible and there's different ways to do things. I understand that. And so is there a different way that we could do this? But not my will, but yours be done. He says, "Just I'm, I'm just asking, but try to do it within, don't change for my sake. Because that's a possibility that God would respond, which these guys rule out earlier in this podcast. They think that God's not responsive. Jesus thinks there's a possibility that God will respond to his petition. So he, he, he prefaces it and says, not my will, but yours be done. Saying, please defer to your own thing, but I'm just letting you know. So if there's a way within what you want, uh, never mind what I want, if, if not, you know. That's just how the Bible works, usually. The question I have is, how can you have peace, rest, and confidence in a God who doesn't know what's happening next? Oh, my emotional security. Oh, oh What does that have to do with anything? Is That's the moralistic fallacy. We covered the moralistic fallacy. It's a fallacy of logic. It's like, oh, this makes me feel nice and, and safe. Okay, so let's pretend God knows the entire future, right? How does that give us any peace and security about anything that happens? Uh, people die. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, that entire missionary family from John Piper's church. They were on their way to get training, to go to Japan, to do missionary work, and they just all die in a car wreck, right? That, that's supposed to give us peace and comfort that, that the righteous die young. In the Bible, when the righteous suffer, do people attribute it to God's ultimate plan? Or is the Psalms just filled with these petitions like, what the heck's going on here, God? The righteous, they're being persecuted. And the wicked, they're prospering. Prospering, Come right this wrong. That's a constant refrain 
throughout the Bible, throughout uh, the exilic prophets, even I got I got a podcast or not, I got a uh, blog post that I, I, I I've categorized all these verses in which the righteous are suffering and the wicked are prospering. Even Job, he says these guys go to their grave old. Lord, what is going on? There's no such thing as retributive justice, right? That's what Job is saying. That and it's it's accurate. It's accurate. So how do you have more comfort with God knowing the future in spite of all these biblical uh, points that the different authors point out that retributive justice is not a feature of this world and God needs to respond in order to right the wrong? How do you have comfort? How are you biblical? And when he reacts in this situation, he could actually be making it worse and making a mistake in my life rather than making it better. It actually reminds me of like a chess match where I make a move and then all of a sudden the other person is now going to decide based on what I did and then he has to wait for me to go again before he does anything. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I mean, and that's a really that's a really loaded question too. I mean, how could you trust a god that is learning and making mistakes? How how could you trust How do you trust your wife? Are you guys married? Anyone married? Anyone listening married? You have a wife? Do you trust your wife? Right? Do you trust your wife or Oh, she doesn't know the future. I can't trust my wife. She makes mistakes. Oh, I cannot trust my wife. What, Lord, what? This is, this is uh, sociopathic, right? This is like a mental illness where you have this ridiculous standard of trust. It's, it's, it's paranoid. It's, it's crazy. I trust my wife. I trust her. Even though, yeah, she, I point out all the time when she makes mistakes. And she's like, you don't need to point this out. I understand I understand it was a mistake. But yeah, you could trust someone who makes mistakes. It's it's fine. Uh, okay, what, what do you think is going to happen? That God doesn't have ultimate victory if he can make mistakes? And how is what we see on earth, what, how is what we experience different than what open theists claim? Hmm? There, there's all sorts of Christian ladies who marry guys they think are great turn out to be complete scuzzballs. This was God's plan. This wasn't a mistake. This is what he wanted. That, that, that's your alternative. And of course, this is all the moralistic fallacy. Moralistic fallacy. God to make the right decisions about your life and, 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 and lead you in the way that you should go. And right. How do you know he's going to react in the right way? Yeah, and that, that chess analogy, that's, that's, that's so true. Yeah. What, what is it? It's uh, Ezekiel, and God says to him, here's what I want you to do. And he gives him these detailed instructions. He's like, and uh, for symbolic reasons, you're going to cook your food over human poop. And Ezekiel's like, I don't want to do that. I've been clean my entire life, Lord. Uh, I've followed kosher law, and this is going to be a violation of that. So how about not do that? And God says, okay, uh, we'll do what you want to. And uh, we'll use cow dung instead of human dung. Okay, petitions work. And uh, Ezekiel, Moses, Abraham, they don't say, Oh, God, who knows the future? Tell us what the future might bring so that uh, you could tell us what's going to happen. No, instead, God says, I'm going to destroy these people. And, and, and uh, what, Moses, he, he doesn't say, What do you see in the future in your crystal ball that they're going to do that you need to destroy them for? He says, don't kill these people. Um, you know, we can work with this. We can work with these people. 
Yeah, no one, no one in the Bible who interacts with God interacts with him with this idea that he knows the future exhaustively. It, it's just, it's just not a feature of the narratives that we have in which God is a participant. That's that's spot on there. I don't, I don't know. These are all questions that open theists, I guess, would have to try to answer. Right? Yeah. Uh, all right, we got one more. We got one more from Tim Challies, um, another an eighth point that he brings up about open theism. It was a great article. Um, God can change his mind, according to open theism. When God realizes he has made an error in judgment or that things did not unfold as he supposed, he can change his mind. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's go real quick to uh, the, the dung, the, the poop example. God changed his mind there. He said, let's use poop, human poop. And then he changed it to cow poop based on objections of someone. Was was did God make a mistake? Did he do something wrong? No, but it was a change of mind nonetheless, right? Like you have God stating what he wants, what he wants to do, and then someone interjecting, uh, praying a petitionary prayer, and then God reacts to that. It's a change of mind, and you see it all the time in the Bible everywhere. These guys are not dealing with the Bible; they're dealing with abstract concepts, and that's how they're criticizing open theism doesn't fly so that speaks to the to the same point um and and even the question that 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 jeff just brought up is um god could make errors in judgment and things could unfold that's loaded language Uh, you probably wouldn't get an open theist saying stuff like that and uh it's basically based on your worldview right an error in judgment well is it an error in judgment when the future doesn't exist and things could go different ways. Like if I bet on something and I have 99 out of 100 chance to uh, get that bet succeeded, right? And then it turns out that it's the one out of 100 times. No one would say I made an error in judgment. I made the right call, right? I, I placed a bet on like a almost sure thing. And it's just random crazy happenstance that didn't come through. It's, that's not an error in judgment. So these guys are using loaded language. They're not thinking through the issues, and they're not being genuine, genuous to the other side, people they disagree with. And, you know, it, it really tells the audience they do not interact with open theists. They don't. They're doing a podcast on something they know nothing about, and they have no experience in. Completely different than what he thought they were going to do, and yeah. things will take place differently than he thought they were going to take place and um, then he can change his mind right so tim challies the last part of this article that we're going to be reading here he concludes the most important thing to note is that god knows the future only as it is not dependent on human free will decisions god does not know what any free will agents humans will do because those decisions do not yet exist well, yeah, you got different types of open theists, and you got the Boyd type who thinks that God knows all possibilities that can ever happen. So if God knows all possibilities of human action, like if I take my hand and I wiggle it to the left a little, wiggle it to the right a little bit, and God knows every single possibility for every single finger placement, every single wiggle that I could, could possibly do, and that's what they hold to, that God knows every single possibility. So... In that case, is, is your criticism accurate against those type? And that, that makes up the majority of open theists who believe in that fashion. 
And uh, just just another indication, these guys don't know the material that they're covering. And God cannot know what does not exist. God decided in creation that he would limit himself in this way in order to give complete freedom to human beings. Therefore, God does not know or control the future. He learns from our decisions and constantly adapts as necessary. He often needs to change his mind or reevaluate his options. I would love to see these guys take the Yale University Christine Hayes course. Their papers would be like just red marks everywhere. It's like, what, what the heck? You're importing all these ideas that are not found in the text. Red mark, red mark, F on this paper. I don't, I don't know if she can say F's for that or if she kind of just laughs and gives them a bye. <laughs> but it'd be funny if they took a real Bible class. As the future unfolds. And then... Tim Challies brings up three problems with open theism. Right. And I think he's being generous there by only saying three because yeah. I think there's a whole lot more than three. But these are the three big ones. Number one, a denial of omniscience. Oh, really? Which omniscience? So you got all sorts of definitions of omniscience. You got the world historical one where it's a passive omniscience that God is watching all things. And this extends to ancient Israel. And modern Calvinists, some of them are getting a little bit smarter, right? And they've started to abandon inerrancy. And they say, you know, uh, it's true that in the Old Testament that God is depicted as not knowing anything and God's warlike and stuff like that. But the Bible is progressive, right? Because we understand that these things that are said about God and the stories about them are just not true. And they were written by kind of ignorant people. But as time progresses, more and more truths were revealed, and it sums up in Christ. So, so a lot of Calvinists are abandoning inerrancy in order to be more true to the Bible. And, and I applaud those guys, because at least, at least they're intellectually honest with the text. But, yeah, Yahweh in the Bible, what omniscience does he have? Which omniscience is described? That God watches people from heaven. God watches people from Zion. The eyes of the Lord are on the good and the bad. It's, it's this passive observance of the present, right? You don't get timelessness in the Bible. It doesn't exist. And their proof texts that they use for timelessness actually deal with time measurement. And so their proof texts refute them. All right. So then what's our other types of omnisciences? There's the omniscience that uh, Boyd believes in which God knows all things uh, that exist and then even on top of that all possibilities you're right and so is is that bad or or is your problem that he's denying active omniscience the Platonistic omniscience that seems to be your problem number two God's goodness greatness and glory are at stake what? No, uh, no. There's good, glorious people that don't fit these uh, Platonistic attributes, right? That That's a subjective judgment on your part. And you're trying to beg the question. You're trying to say, uh, we win this point because we define all the terms and we don't uh, let common sense prevail. We don't allow any alternative definitions to prevail. And we'll just... Uh, your your God is just lacking in glory, right? And it's this incredibly, 
incredibly uh, disingenuous, intellectually dishonest mindset that these guys uh, adhere to and uh, the author that they're quoting adheres to. Just dishonesty. And three, and this once again goes back up to the point that Jeff brought up before, the Christian's confidence in God is at stake. Oh, my emotional states, my emotional arguments, my confidence, because I'm a sociopath and I have no confidence in anyone who doesn't know the future, so I don't have any confidence in anyone, not even myself. Oh, the world is so hard. This is sociopathic. Sociopathic. So as, as soon as uh, these Arminians and Calvinists stop being sociopaths, maybe we could have an honest dialogue. Yeah. So these are, I mean, those are really good criticisms by Tim Challies. Like I said, you can add a whole lot more than that to that list, but I think that's a good place to start anyway. Right. So let me turn to see what some contemporary Arminian scholars have to say about this. Roger Olson, Roger Olson, come on, please. Um, what do you have for us, Ben? We'll take a look at um, a couple points that Roger Olson brings up in our... Boom. Okay. Let's, let's hear this. Minion theology, myths and realities. Uh, he has a chapter where he's defending that Arminians do believe in predestination, uh, but he does bring up open theism in this chapter. Uh, but Olson gives a little bit of insight into what we're looking at here. He says that open theists... Yeah, I direct everyone to read Roger Olson's just his uh, go to his blog post and do a search on open theism and read his articles on open theism because he was really in this heart of this debate when these Calvinists came out in the most social justice, anti-free speech, trying to shut people down, shout people down with ad hominem attacks. He was in the center of all this and he saw the intellectual dishonesty on the anti-open theist side, all this misrepresentations and the misrepresentations are still reverberating today as evidenced by this podcast that we are responding to. That these, these people, they just propagate lies, and they believe these lies, and they don't interact, and they don't want to interact. It's, it's, it's so weird that they don't want to debate ideas. They just, they just want to emote. Let's jump on the problem of reconciling divine foreknowledge and libertarian free will by suggesting that the two cannot be reconciled, so God must not know the future exhaustively and infallibly insofar as it contains decisions and actions not yet determined or caused by anything or anyone. He says they argue that God's foreknowledge is limited because God has decided it should be. Perhaps a better way of putting it is that God does know the future infallibly as a realm of both settled and yet unsettled events. For open theists, God knows it is both open and settled because some future decisions and actions are already determined by God or something or someone else. But some of it is not yet settled. Because yeah, in what way are they determined? It's not determined in the same way that like Calvinistic determination works or Arminianism determinism works where there's a future event that's set exactly. The type of determinism we're talking about with open theism is what we commonly know uh, between, you know, just any interaction with any person. I determine to go to work on XYZ day. I determine to wash my clothes on Sunday, right? 
I determined to record a podcast. That's determinism. I determined the future. And it's not like the event is like settled and concrete now. I could still change my mind if, if I so wanted because the future doesn't exist. I didn't just solidify like an actual real object in the future. I've just determined to do something that's within my power to do. And when we look at the Bible and how God does prophecy, that's exactly how that works. Like he determines to do something with his own power. And sometimes that is given a lot of flexibility in how that event comes across and the time frames that are involved, right? Like, like uh, he said that Israel was supposed to be oppressed in a land that's not their own for 400 years. And it said they were in Egypt for 430 years. And on top of that, they were only oppressed for like about 80 years. So it, there's, there's flexibility in how that foreordained, predestined uh, event actually it gets carried out in the real world. Because humans have ability to do otherwise and therefore will yet decide, for example, between op options A and B. Until they decide, even God cannot know with absolute certainty which will be chosen. Yeah, like in Exodus, when Moses says, what if Israel doesn't believe me? And then God gives him a cascading plan of what to do. If they don't believe you here, then we do this. If they don't believe you here, then do this. If they don't believe you here, then it's a cascading contingency plan based on if the people don't respond. So there's, there's no knowledge of the future going on here. And God works. God works with what he's given. And this is the biblical story. He says, open theists argue that their view is consistent with Arminianism, which we're going to look at momentarily. And uh, we'll, we'll give you our sound, um, our sound studied opinion on that. But Olson writes, there's sound studied opinion. Okay. As they see it, they have fixed classical Arminianism's logical ins inconsistency between divine foreknowledge and human free will. But at what cost, Olson asks. Most Arminians have not jumped on the open theist bandwagon because they are committed to the doctrine of predestination. Calvinists accuse classical Arminians of not believing in predestination, but most classical Arminians reject open theism be precisely because they believe in predestination. If open theism is true, then election and reprobation can only be corporate. But classical Arminianism bases a great deal on Romans 8.29, which seems to refer not to classes or groups, but to individuals. God does not justify and glorify groups, but individuals. Classical Arminian theology includes corporate election and individual election based on God's foreknowledge. Roger Olson's really good. He's, he understands, he's, he's sharp, and he's able to put together uh, disparate facts, like facts from all over the place and compile them and understand what's going on. And he saw the persecution of the open theists, and he wrote about it. ...of future faith. Open theism has to reduce predestination to its indefinite corporate dimension. Predestination of individuals gets lost. Except for in the specific cases where certain individuals are called, uh, they're predestined, right? Not everyone fulfills that calling, right? Saul was supposed to be given an eternal kingdom. He, God says, I would have given you an eternal kingdom, but look at what you've done. You've done yeah, so, now, so now I have to go find someone else, and I'll find David. And I'll give him the eternal kingdom, but then I'll warn him throughout his uh, reign and the reign of his son, Solomon. 
and uh, after that even, that if you guys rebel, and if you guys become wicked, I could also revoke your eternal kingdom. So there's all sorts of eternal kingdoms, eternal lines in the Bible that can be dissolved, even though they're eternal, even though they're forever, God changes based on the actions of people. Some classical Arminians reject open theism because they believe it undermines God's providential governance of history. But Olson says that that assumes that foreknowledge gives God a providential advantage, which he says is debatable. It remains to be seen whether many Arminians will adopt open theism, in Olson's opinion. I think it's interesting that Olson asks this question. It remains to be seen whether many Arminians will adopt open theism. Now, I would argue that if an Arminian adopts open theism, then that person is no longer an Arminian. Have you guys defined Arminianism yet? Uh, Are we going to hit that within the last, what, uh, we got like 10 minutes left in the podcast? Well, let's, let's, let's listen. I would agree. Because wouldn't it make sense that to be an Arminian you actually have to adhere to the theology of Arminius. Yes. I don't understand where this comes from. That's like saying it remains to be seen whether many Calvinists will adopt open theism. Right. And they're open theists, but yet they... Because you're presuming that open theists are not Arminians. And have you read Roger Olson on it? He thinks they are. They still call themselves Calvinists. Like that wouldn't... Everyone would say that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So how come people don't say that... How come people don't say it doesn't make sense for for Arminians? Because Roger Olson categorizes open theism as Arminianism. But are you guys going to cover that fact, or you guys just, you're you're not aware? I don't know. They've given a lot of room room for interpretation. Yeah. Over the years. But it's just bad scholarship. Yeah. Oh, we love this Odin guy from the last podcast, the guy who writes an emotional article without any real interaction with open theists, and he calls open theists heretics. For why? Does he tell us in the article? Why? 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 What makes that a heretic? What makes those specific issues heresy? He doesn't. He doesn't. He just emotes, and that's the guy these guys love, but they don't like Roger Olson, who is like a clear scholar of the issue, and has written a lot about this, and they don't have the time to just look up what he says about open theism. Rather than just this one quote from this book. Want to keep reading there? Yeah, let's finish that last sentence. Few Arminians, Olson writes, are willing to denounce their open theist brothers and sisters as heretics. Strong language. But most are unwilling at present to give up belief in absolute divine foreknowledge because the Bible seems to assume it everywhere. I guess I would correct that last sentence um, myself to say that the Bible teaches it everywhere. Okay, where, where, where? Show me one place in the Bible. One place. We go over your place. We go over your favorite proof text. We got podcasts on Isaiah. We got podcasts on Romans. We got podcasts on all your proof texts. Where? Where in the Bible teaches God's absolute foreknowledge of all things in the future? It really comes down to reading comprehension issues. Uh, people like these, these guys are podcasters. They grow up in a church. They hear these doctrines and they look for support for these doctrines and they proof text. They grab verses out of context. They don't consider alternative readings of those verses 
and they divorce it from the context. Uh, can you place those verses back into context and have them still make sense with the flow of the argument that you find in context? Right? It doesn't work for Isaiah 40 through 48, right? Th that doesn't make any sense. God's just, for some random reason, saying that he controls and knows all things. No, it's it's in the in the context of an argument. God's trying to convince Israel of something. He's trying to convince them that he's more powerful than the fake gods because people in Israel have like two choices, right? They have Yahweh and they have the false gods. And Yahweh has to say, I'm powerful. Look at these things that I've done. And you know, I did them because I told you I was going to do them before I did them. Right. And that's his argument. So he's, he's desperately trying to reach these people and to convince them. It's, it's, it doesn't work in context. Like, Oh, he knows all the, if that was the point, that's what would be written. And that's how a lot of these dialogues would go. God, what if there's 50 unrighteous people in Israel? Oh, or 50 righteous people in Israel. Uh, hold on right there, Abraham. Uh, there are 37, 37. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's just one, God does, God says, how long will Israel perturb me? How long will they reject me? It was instead this conversation would be like they will reject me for 27 years and then you'd look for another verse and then say they rejected him for 27 years instead you find loose dates like uh, that uh, israel will be in egypt for 400 years well 430 give or take and then uh you know 80 years of persecution the, the babylonian exile will be 80 years well yeah, 60 years close enough that that's how prophecy works prophecy of Tyre or Tyre, whatever you, however you want to say it, that didn't come true, right? And then these guys say, well, th this prophecy has a limited flexibility, so it could be fulfilled 250 years later to people who weren't even prophesied against, and uh, there's no point to this prophecy. It's just killing people 250 years later. Brilliant. Yeah, he definitely does. Um, it, it doesn't just seem to assume it everywhere right. it said the bible teaches it everywhere where and i mean olson also says few arminians are willing to denounce their open theist brothers and sisters as yeah like also when you look at their proof text like the eyes of the lord are on the good and wicked and people use that as a proof text like arminians that i talk to they say look that's god's omniscience of all things past present and future no it's not read the verse that's a present observance that's a gaining current present information uh through means it's a it's a mechanistic knowledge that that there's a way that the information transfers to god and it's in your proof text your proof text is a proof text against you heretics but as mentioned earlier <coughs> in the episode um thomas odin does specifically come out publicly in christianity today and say the guy's an idiot. Read his article. He doesn't make arguments. It's just name calling. Brilliant. Say that open theists are heretics. Yeah. Or, I guess more specifically, that open theism is heresy. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> Based on what? What? What's heretical? What? That we believe the Bible. That that we believe the Bible. Would we see that the Bible says God regretted making man? That we believe it. Oh, we are so heretical. <sighs> But 
Let's turn to an opinion of another current Arminian scholar, um, Tom, um, Keith Stanglin and Thomas McCall, in their book, Jacob Arminius, Theologian of Grace, touch on this whole question. And they also touch on the bigger question of what truly, truly is Arminianism and whether or not open theism would fit in that definition on page 196. They write, the terms Arminian and Arminianism have come to be applied to a vast range of views and ecclesial groups. In many cases, Arminianism simply means rejection of the Reformed doctrine of predestination. In some instances, the Arminian theology is refined and sophisticated. In others, it may be ill-formed and vague. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times, Arminianism is a vague concept. People say, I'm not an Arminian. You're totally an Arminian, dude. Uh, even if you believe in exhaust, exhaustive foreknowledge, if you believe in free will, basically, and interaction with God, you are an Arminian. That's the normal cultural conception of what Arminianism is. And so if you want to argue like a stricter definition and then argue on top of that, that open theism is not an Arminian theology, it's, it's your prerogative, but you have to admit at least within the broader, more culturally relevant definition Open theism is Arminian theology, even though that, you know, you guys like to emote, you like to say, oh, I don't like this because, oh, so you might not like the fact that open theism can be classified in this broader categorization of Arminian theology, but guess what? You don't get to shape the world. Sometimes the theology espoused under the label of Arminianism bears little or no resemblance to that of Arminius. Sometimes, especially at more popular levels, what is claimed as Arminian may be explicitly inconsistent with the theology of Arminius. If Arminian simply means some version of Protestantism that is not Reformed... Yeah, a lot of modern-day Calvinists reject quotes by Calvin. They'll say, yeah, John Calvin believed that, but modern-day Calvinism believes something else. That's legitimate. Ideas could change. We don't deify people like John Calvin or Jacob Arminianus, and we allow cultural definitions to prevail, right? So if you guys want to change the title of your podcast to Do Open Theists Agree with Jacob Arminius? Uh, I can answer that for you right now. Nope. Nope. There, there's, there's significant differences, right? And would he like high five them and say, hey, welcome to my group of people who I lead. He, he might not do that. He might not do that. But broader Arminianism, as it's culturally defined, open theists fit that definition. Then surely many theologies and ecclesial bodies count as such. But such a way of reckoning is insufficient. Lutheran theologians, for example, are neither Arminian nor Reformed. On the other hand, if the theology of Arminius himself... I would say they're Arminian has any real connection with the term, then it is highly doubtful that, say, open theism or... I think Roger Olson kind of defines himself as a reformed theologian, or N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright's the one who does that. He calls himself reformed, but he's not a Calvinist, and so, you know, reformed has a flexible definition as well. Or views that deny the classical doctrine of God or the doctrines of original sin or justification by grace alone through faith alone, or many others, could rightly be considered Arminian. 
despite the fact that in popular understanding such views may often be regarded as forms of Arminianism. Such diversity of Arminian theologies calls for a moment's reflection. Perhaps there are few neat and tidy answers to questions of definition. Without such definition, however, the label is not likely to be helpful in current discussions. So I think McCall and Stanglin really hit the nail on the head here. They always do. They, they always do. What a great book. Jacob Arminius, Theologian of Grace, buy it. Please. I really like what they say here, that everything that's not Calvinist doesn't mean that it's Arminian. It's, right. It doesn't make any sense. Right. That's a, that's a broad... It makes no sense. What, what, what's this? That everyone who's a Gentile is just everyone who's not a Jew? Doesn't make sense. Oh, it doesn't make any sense. Come on, really? Yeah, you, you can't see that how that might be a possibility. Just maybe, maybe, maybe just a little bit. A brush to, uh, to paint with. I mean, this line here is exactly what we're talking about here. If the theology of Arminius himself has any real connection with the term, see, I would argue that the theology of Arminius should actually have a connection to the term Arminianism. Right. So if the theology of Arminius himself has any real connection with the term, then it is highly doubtful say, open theism are views that deny the classical doctrine of God is, could rightly be considered Arminian. And, and it can't be. I mean, right. Arminius did not deny the classical doctrine. It can't be? Okay, so this entire podcast is about this question. You fail to define the question, and you fail to adequately show that the more popular understanding of Arminianism is true. You just discount that. And you say this this more specific definition is what we're going with. And because I get to define the terms, we're the calling open theism, not Arminianism. Great. Great. That, that's what this entire podcast boils down to. You guys didn't discuss at all the issues. The doctrine of God. Arminius did not deny the doctrine of original sin or justification by grace alone through faith alone. Right. So if you deny all those things... And you call yourself an Arminian, you're not an Arminian. Right. No matter what you claim that you... And a lot of open theists do claim a lot of those. And so, are they Arminian? And if you deny one of them, are you not Arminian? Do you have to agree with every single jot and tittle of Jacob Arminius to be called an Arminian? Where, where's your cutoff? Where's your line? Where's your definitions? Give us something. It doesn't matter if you claim to be an Arminian. If you don't actually adhere to the theology of Arminius, then you're not an Arminian. Right. So therefore, I would say that open theists are not Arminian. So you got to agree with Jacob Arminius 100% and not have any wavering, and then you could be an Arminian. Brilliant. Brilliant. This You could have started the podcast like this. Everyone could have saw... How ridiculous this definition is going to be, how ridiculous you're treating this question, and then they could just tuned out. But you wait for now. That's fine. That's your prerogative. Uh, but I'm going to call you on it. They're not. No. And it doesn't matter what other people say. I mean, you have to see. We got the definition. We define it. And we don't give our qualifications very well. We don't show our cutoffs or our thresholds. 
how much disagreeance you can have or hundred percent, hundred percent. You have to have hundred percent agreeance with Jacob Arminius. And then after we define the terms, then we'll discount it, right? Because we are the arbitrators of what's considered Arminian theology. Does the theology of open theism align itself with the theology of Jacob Arminius? No. The answer is no. No. It does in the sense that it's open and relational and God responds and people have freedom to choose and they're not predestined. All of those things are basically how people would define Arminian theology. Like you go grab a random Christian who's heard of Arminianism and that's how they would define it. But you guys want a different definition and then from your different definition, you want to claim open theists aren't Arminians. Okay. So then, therefore, it's not Arminian theology. Right. And with that, we will draw this episode to a close. Episode 15, Open Theism Part 1. Part 2 will be released in two weeks. And we will pick up this conversation then. <laughs> great, great. Another episode. Let's see what they give us in the second episode. But just, just a review of their episode. They don't quote any open theists. They don't deal with any open theist literature. They quote only hostile sources. They use Theopedia definition from a hostile webpage. They said they're going to read Odin, which is another hostile source who just emotes in his article. Pull, pull up his article. I think I got a PDF of it somewhere sitting around. I read it. And I'm like, this guy is a tool. He's a tool bag. And, you know, on my previous podcast, I called these podcasters tool bags. I'll call them it again. It's fine. And uh, you might not like me for it. I don't care. I don't care. But, yeah, this is what these guys do. They build up straw men. They don't understand the issues that they're dealing with. And uh, they, a lot of begging the question fallacy in this, this last part that we went over, where they just assume their own position is true without a broader understanding of other alternatives. Like more common alternatives, what more, more, more people believe is Armenian, what the common definitions are. They ignore all that and they go to their own specific ill-defined definition, which isn't very specific. We don't know. We don't know who would and wouldn't in this understanding be considered Armenian. And uh, we don't know how these specific traits were selected, where they weighed against each other. We don't know. We don't know. So I don't think these guys are doing real justice to anything in these this episode, this one episode. But uh, this has been God is Open. You have uh, comments, complaints, questions. Send it to godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.